Listener Production. Hello. In this episode of The Briefing, what it's like living with ADHD. I had always sort of described my thoughts as like a jar of bees. And you're trying to pinpoint out of the 100 bees that are flying around, which one is making the noise. Yeah, so this interview with Melbourne woman Bridget Pringle really helps you understand the day-to-day reality of ADHD. And another really interesting part of her story is how she realised that she had ADHD. The signs were there, but I think I had a similar experience to a lot of people (laughs) that TikTok algorithm uh, knew I had ADHD before I did. Yeah, so there's been a growing awareness and diagnosis of ADHD, particularly for adult women. Bridget's story will explain why and also learn how much difference a diagnosis and then the treatment can actually make to someone's life. Um, First, very excited to say that for today's headlines, we are joined by a voice you know and love, but might have been pining for for quite some time, at least six months. Jan Fran, hello. Oh, Thomas, what a reintroduction. <laughs> How much did you miss me on a scale from one to ten? Like 11 or? A hundred. A hundred. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see your face. I know I know that some people listening can't and I don't believe you. You don't believe me. <laughs> Not a hundred. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Um, I have a a baby, which I didn't have the last time I did this show with you, and now I do. Um, So that's been pretty different. Are you a different person? Uh, I'm a more tired person. Mm. (laughs) I bet. I think I'm the same person, but just a little bit more tired. Yeah. Yeah. I was waking up at 6am anyway, so hey, what's a a 4am wake-up call when you're already waking up at 6 in the morning? Yeah, we're both sort of, um, we've given up our, our mornings you know, they're no longer ours. Exactly. We may as well give them to our babies or our podcast listeners. Exactly. Who And you know what? I don't know who we love more, Tom, <laughs> frankly. Um. <laughs> All right, let's get into the headlines. We're going to start with the funeral for George Pell. A protest is happening outside the funeral today. Depending on what time you're listening to this, the funeral may have already taken place. Um, This was after police and LGBTQI activists agreed that they will be taking a different route for the march. I think we've honoured survivors and given a voice to the voiceless. That was protest organiser Tess Hall there. She was speaking to... Channel 7. So what happened was that police made an application to the New South Wales Supreme Court yesterday. They tried to stop activists from demonstrating outside George Pell's funeral. Mm. Both sides have now come to an agreement that the protest can happen. It just won't take the same route as originally planned. So now they'll walk along the road outside the cathedral, not technically on it. Mm. So they definitely won't be shutting down the road. Um, I would imagine... If they're going to walk along the side of the road, it'd probably be on the opposite side of the road to the cathedral. But I think... Yeah. For those who don't know Sydney, just to jump in here, on the other side of the road is a park. So mm. it's, uh, you know, very likely that when you say walking along the side of the road, there's that park that's going to be open to them, but they won't be at the door. I think because the police took this to the Supreme Court, the protesters have already made a, a big statement before the protest even happens. It's got a lot of people's attention. I think that you know, because the police have pushed back on the route of the protest, they definitely won't be right outside the cathedral mm. um, in a sort of a, a distasteful way like the Westborough Baptist Church people in America used to hold up placards outside the funerals of US soldiers. Um, but I think their presence will be felt. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's uh, ribbons that have been put on um, gates outside the church. Lots of ribbons. Mm. 
And I think police tried to take them down at one point and people just kept putting them back up. So, yeah, yeah, so whether or not you're protesting, certainly uh, survivors and allies of survivors are making their voices heard in some way. Yeah, and interesting that the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, won't be attending the funeral. No, but John Howard and Tony Abbott, two former Prime Ministers, they will. And a former Cabinet Minister, Alan Tudge, has told the Royal Commission into robo-debt that he knew the scheme was inaccurate back in 2017, even though it continued for another two years. I was aware that the system, even from an income averaging perspective, had the potential to create inaccuracies. So he was the Human Services Minister in 2016 and 17 when this scheme was getting underway. Um, That was under the Turnbull government. And he's the third ex-minister to give evidence um, about the unlawful recovery debt program and the inquiry is continuing in Brisbane this week. He seemed to sort of blame everyone but himself. He (laughs) blamed the Department of Social Services. He blamed Cabinet. He said that this was a program that uh, Cabinet came up with. So, you know, if they've okayed it, then it must be fine. And I think at, at one point he was asked by a senior counsel just straight up, do you know what ministerial responsibility means? <laughs> what were you doing well, as the minister? Yeah, which, you know, I I don't think he meant to sound facetious, but he sort of did. And again, Tudge was like, well, you know, I can't possibly be across every single little detail and conversations that are happening between um, people in my office. Yeah, but he was copping a lot of heat for this at the time. I interviewed him Mm. on Triple J. Lots of other people were interviewing, raising questions because people's lives were being destroyed by this. This financial pressure drove some people right off the edge, literally. The other bombshell evidence out of the Royal Commission was the day before. So his former media advisor, Rochelle Miller, who's also the woman he had an affair with, and that got very messy, she told the commission that they were planting stories on some of these individuals who were damaged by road debt, they were they were sending other media outlets negative information about these people to discredit them. Yeah, well, basically they released the personal details of a lot of the people um, who had their debts collected. And what Rochelle Miller said was that there had been so many negative stories about robo-debt appearing in what she called left-wing media. So part of their strategy was to plant stories in uh, friendly media or Mm. what she called right-wing media about the government being really good at catching welfare cheats because that's the kind of story that, you know, really gets people's goat. Well, that Um, part of it's fine, but it's releasing the the personal details, that's the problem. Well, I think as well it's just the um, the blatantness of the strategy of knowing that the left-wing, I'm doing air quotes here, the left-wing media is mm. onto you and so you kind of devise these stories that you know are going to get people angry and you plant them in media that's um, otherwise friendly to you. I mean, that whole thing stinks. And the minister himself in front of the commission said that he did approve for the details of um, robo-debt victims to be released but that he couldn't remember... Um, or that he couldn't recall whether that was uh, the strategy of of planting those stories. And that tiny radioactive capsule that went missing in WA has been found. The capsule was located just south of Newman on the Great Northern Highway. It was two metres from the side of the road. Newman, by the way, is in the middle of nowhere in Western Australia. That's the Fire and Emergency Services Commissioner, Darren Clem. So this capsule... It's tiny, size of a pea, basically, six millimetres by eight millimetres. It was lost uh, after being transported on a truck along a 1,400 kilometre route. So they had their work cut out for them finding this <laughs> tiny pea. 
um, in the middle of basically outback Australia. And they had this vehicle that drove along the road that could detect radiation and hats off, they found it. Hats off. Somebody said, um, we literally found a needle in a haystack. And I was like, wow, not literally, but as close to that saying as possible. Well, yeah, the, the metaphor. The metaphor so not is literal, very correct. Yeah. The metaphor gets thrown around a lot and that's a pretty fair way to use it, I think. Yeah. The reason why this thing is so potent, I guess, it contains something called cesium, which um, if touched is sort of like receiving the radiation dose of 10 x-rays. And, you know, radiation is carcinogenic, so there's all sorts of protections around that. But that's why they just didn't, you know, they wanted to make sure that they got this little Mm. tiny pea-sized thing off the road. They certainly didn't want to be responsible for it. And more trouble for Qantas. So two people have been taken to hospital after a Qantas Link flight hit major turbulence. This was a flight going to Harvey Bay from Brisbane. It had to turn back after a few minutes yesterday afternoon. Ambulances were called to the flight. Several passengers treated for minor injuries. One was a crew member with an injured neck and another was a passenger who suffered cuts and bruises. So they're having a bad run. That comes after six turnbacks in the space of a week recently. And the other story, Jan, that's very interesting, this rare green comet. I'm not a space fan. You don't care? (laughs) I don't really care. There's enough going on here on Earth, isn't there? Oh, there's too much going on here on Earth, if you ask me. But for those who do care, I know a lot of people love space. Well, this thing's actually beautiful. It looks like a little green emerald sitting up in the sky. Wow. And it, well, I mean, it also hasn't been seen since the Stone Age, apparently. It's made... It's, so even you and I haven't seen it. <laughs> and we're both very, very old, but we're not that old. No. Um, it is making its closest approach to Earth. So, I mean, mm. if, you're, if you're into it, um, you, you might be able to see it. It was discovered last year because it was the first time that it came close enough to us to know that it was there, and now it's getting close enough to see, apparently in the next few days. Yeah, so they've been seeing it in the Northern Hemisphere for the last few days, and we're going to start to be able to see it sometime soon. So you obviously won't bother. I won't bother, no. (laughs) And we live in the middle of a big city, so it's probably too bright anyway, (laughs) and we're not going to travel to, like, Broken Hill to see it. No, but look, if you're listening in Broken Hill... Hey, get out there. Get out there. Look up at the sky. You might see some green, you know? And to those who, you know, who do look up into the sky and see anything green floating around, don't be afraid. It's a beautiful comet, apparently. Great to have you back, Jan. Lovely to be back. I meant that. All right, Antoinette's about to join me as we talk uh, to this incredible um, woman, Bridget Pringle, who does an amazing job of explaining what ADHD is really like. All right, now to our briefing on ADHD. He was once called ADD and was mostly talked about in the context of naughty little boys at school. But the face of the condition's changing, the awareness is changing, and Antoinette, we're also talking a lot more about adult women. Yeah, so prescriptions for ADHD medication, they've doubled in a decade. And I think what's really interesting, Tom, is that the uptake is mainly in adults, Um, and mostly women. And there have been a couple of really high-profile women who've shared their recent diagnosis. Being diagnosed with ADHD at 42 profoundly changed my core beliefs about myself. I was forced to peel back carefully constructed layer after layer, and at times it revealed a terrifying fragility. So that's comedian M. Rusciano, um, who's just one of the high-profile Aussie women to share 
her ADHD diagnosis. Uh, media entrepreneur Mia Friedman is another. And yes, I know there are a lot of women talking about being diagnosed with ADHD right now. And you might even be rolling your eyes or muttering, what a stupid trend, under your breath. But it's actually a long overdue and welcome correction for many women, including me. Yeah, it's been really interesting to hear those stories come to light. Um, Both those women were talking about it last year and it's rippling through the community. We've found someone whose life has changed dramatically since getting a diagnosis in their adult life. Bridget Pringle, she's a Melbourne-based advertising professional and a mother of two. She was diagnosed about two years ago. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Tell us about your journey with ADHD. When were you diagnosed? Yeah, well, I was diagnosed only about two years ago, which looking back now is funny because the signs were there. But um, I think I had a similar experience to a lot of people (laughs) that TikTok algorithm uh, knew I had ADHD before I did Hmm. um, and and it just started serving me content uh, about ADHD. And I kept thinking, oh, that video is so funny. That's so relatable. And I would look at the hashtags and it was saying, you know, hashtag ADHD. (laughs) So um, yeah, that was sort of what started the questioning. What were those videos showing that got your attention? It was things that I never traditionally would have associated with ADHD. And I think everybody has kind of an image in your head of what ADHD looks like. And it's a lot to do with the hyperactivity, but that is really oftentimes a more kind of masculine presentation. Females with ADHD often more have the inattentive type. So it's things like walking into a room and immediately forgetting what you're supposed to be doing and being halfway through chores or activities and completely losing your train of thought and getting distracted by something else. I was always told that I had sort of not very good social awareness and conversations because I was always talking over people and interrupting and sort of butting in because that was just how my train of thought was. It was kind of always jumping all over the place. And really it's sort of more of a social struggle a lot of the times for women than it is so much, you know, in schooling or things like that. And then girls are diagnosed with ADHD at just under half the rate of boys in childhood. Um, However, by adulthood, women are being diagnosed at equal levels to men. Is that under diagnosis or do you believe it's um, a later onset for women that's driving this? Because ADHD is genetic, if you have it, you have it. You're always going to have it. But there's a couple of sort of factors at play. One of them is that the original diagnostic criteria for ADHD was based only on boys. <laughs> it was based only on how it presents um, in males. And so we now know that it looks really different in women. And a lot of the time there's a social element to it that girls are socialized to mask their symptoms a lot more. So I never struggled in school because I sort of white knuckled my way through it. And if you look at all of my reports, you know, I don't have any reports about me acting out in school, but they do all say Bridget's doing okay, but she is distracting everybody else around her in the class because even though I could sort of manage to keep my own work on task, I couldn't manage to stop myself from interrupting or distracting other people. You know, a lot of women just kind of find coping mechanisms throughout their life and become, you know, successful people in their careers. I'm a project manager, which is laughable, but uh, my, my career is in project management. And my psychiatrist told me that actually it's super common to see people who are late diagnosed in really high stress careers like emergency medicine or project management because they've realized that a high stress environment sort of encourages productivity in them. And a lot of people, when you're late diagnosed, 
you've basically gone through your whole life forcing yourself to be busy because you realize that it makes you functional. So how did you respond to receiving that diagnosis? Um, And was that different to the way friends and family responded? To me, it was such a relief because I had been struggling with things my whole life that I felt so frustrated at myself that I was just incapable of doing. So then receiving the diagnosis and being able to access medication that removed that barrier in my brain and dropped these kind of invisible walls that I didn't realize other people didn't have. It was such a light bulb moment for me. But I think the people around me probably struggled with it a little bit more than I did just because, you know, a lot of people around me sort of thought, oh, no, that doesn't sound like you. You know, you did really well at school. Mm. You're just kind of bubbly and quirky and talkative, you know. So I think it took a while until really I started on medication and they could see kind of the difference in my anxiety levels and the difference in how happy I was and and how fulfilled I felt in my work and how much less stress I was experiencing on a day-to-day basis just going through my everyday life. Yeah, I'm keen to learn more about how the treatment helped you, but tell us more about the real pain and the real struggle of it. You talked about feeling anxious. What are the worst parts of it? It's a really common experience with people who have been diagnosed with ADHD later in life that they've gone through their life being told they're just anxious. And the reality is, is that when you're living your life with a brain that you feel is incapable of doing things that other people do easily, it's the most frustrating experience. And then you sort of reach this point where you feel like, well, there's something wrong with me because why can't I just pick a fork up off the floor? You know, why can't I remember to turn the stove off? Why can't I remember to take my bins out? Like it's these simple everyday things that other people take for granted. It's so debilitating to be living your life and feeling like there's this invisible thing that's wrong with you. So my self-esteem was incredibly low in my sort of early career as an adult because I just felt like I was wrong. (laughs) Like I was different to other people. And not only that, there's a whole sort of side of ADHD, which really doesn't get talked about, which is sensory issues. I grew up my whole life getting really overwhelmed by different types of lights, different types of loud noises. If I was in a social setting for too long, I became incredibly overwhelmed by those things. And I would need to go sort of away by myself and just kind of regulate. And I never understood that side of it. I never understood why a busy mall would make me feel like I was going to have a panic attack. And it wasn't actually until I was talking to the psychologist and psychiatrist that I realized that those sensory issues are part of ADHD as well. And trying to balance all of those things and come across like none of it is bothering you (laughs) is incredibly taxing. So in in recent months, some super successful and high-profile women like um, media entrepreneur Mia Friedman and comedian M. Rosciano, they've come out and talked about their ADH diagnosis. And while no doubt that does good things for awareness, does it in a way like kind of put pressure on people with ADHD to be seen as like superstars or that their neurodiversity has put them at the top of their game? It really rubs me the wrong way when people sort of try to spin it as, you know, my ADHD is my superpower and talk about it as kind of like a a super positive thing, which if for the individual, it is a really positive thing. That's so great. And it's so fantastic that they've managed to find a way to live with their brain in a way that is positive for their life. But the, the reality is that for many people with ADHD, 
it is a disability and it's recognized as a disability under the 1992 Discrimination Act, but it's not recognized as a disability by the NDIS. And for a lot of people who have higher support needs than I do, or that, you know, some of the, the more prominent sort of faces of ADHD in public do, it really disrupts their day-to-day life to the point where, you know, they might not be able to hold down jobs. They might not be able to take care of themselves properly. I'm fortunate that it isn't super impactful for my life. And so that allows me to be able to talk about it and put energy into, you know, awareness about ADHD. So you've talked about being on medication. What's the full range of your treatment? When I remember to take it, which is one of the most ironic things about ADHD medication, <laughs> is that remembering to take it is a really effort in itself. Um, I'm on uh, Ritalin, which is the sort of classic um, ADHD medication that people think of, um, which really, I think, has so much stigma to it. And it's one of the things that's really hard for people with ADHD as an adult, um, because if you weren't sort of diagnosed as a child and grew up with medication, you can get really negative responses to saying to people that you're going to go on Ritalin um, or that you're going to go on a stimulant medication because there's sort of this view on it that it's kind of just like a street drug almost, you know, you hear the stories about people using it in, in university to stay up all night and study when the reality is that, you know, the first day that I took my medication, I cried because about 30 minutes after taking it, my brain went quiet And it was the first time in my life I had experienced that. And I could not believe (laughs) that other people got to feel like that, that they got to wake up in the morning and have a single train of thought. (laughs) And I I had always sort of described my thoughts as like a jar of bees. Mm. And you're trying to pinpoint out of the hundred bees that are flying around, which one is making the noise. But I took a nap because it was the first time that my brain was quiet in my whole life. Wow. And um, it was such a relief. So how much has this diagnosis and the treatment changed your life? Just so massively on a personal level, my, my self-esteem, the way that I you know, view myself, the way that I can relate you know, to my family, the way that I can be more present for my children because I'm not struggling with anxiety and depression like I used to. And a lot of that is just understanding myself and understanding my strengths and weaknesses and building my life in a way that supports me and advocating for myself and, you know, with employers and and with people around me advocating for my needs and for setting up my life in a way that will make me successful. So it's, it's completely changed my life. I'm I'm so grateful for TikTok (laughs) for telling me I had ADHD. That was Bridget Pringle, a Melbourne based advertising professional Tom, I, I can't help but feel that if I was someone like Bridget, I'd be, feel pretty let down by the medical fraternity that it took TikTok mm. and not a medical professional to help identify that I have ADHD. Yeah, and it ended up a good news story because the treatment's been so helpful for her, but yeah, she could have had it years ago if the diagnostic tools in our medical system had been better. Yeah, and awareness is a really good thing. I think it's great to have people like Bridget talking about it, you know, people like Emra Shiano, Mia Friedman. Um, but awareness is one thing. The next step, which is arguably the harder part, is actually getting a diagnosis. There are long waiting lists. It's costly. Psychiatrists, uh, some have closed their books for the year. Others have months-long mm. waiting lists. So, I mean, I think the awareness part is well underway, but the biggest challenge is ahead.
listener.